listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for January 2020. Today's episode is titled, Building on Christ. Wise organizational leaders seek to discern both the level of maturity and the call of God on people. Such leaders develop people by facilitating the formation of Christ in them, understanding that maturity in Christ is a key to release calling. Leaders must avoid the temptation to use people for their own agendas, which is abuse. Instead, leaders must disciple people into maturity in Christ. This is the predicate to organizational success. That is, the right people serving the right customers or clients by doing the right things, the right way, in the right place, at the right time, for the right reason. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Christ Formed in You. Well, this morning we want to look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 12 through 20. And let me read it. Uh, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You knew it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may, be, may uh, make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. This is the big agenda for Paul, Christ being formed in his disciples. He concludes here, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. The Apostle Paul was a spiritual father to his readers. He invested in them and carried them in his heart. His gospel was the holistic, transforming power of God at work in us. The gospel was far more profound than the popular prosperity gospel of the 21st century. The prosperity gospel posits that God serves man. The Pauline gospel posited that man served God. Not to gain acceptance with God, but because God graciously provided a way for man to be acceptable. Therefore, whoever receives this gracious gift of eternal life should be filled with such immense gratitude that the only proper response can be complete commitment to serve God. In other words, The Pauline Gospel posited that redeemed man is empowered to obey God out of a profound sense of gratitude for the indescribable gift of eternal life through the grace of Christ. Legalists attacked the Pauline Gospel advocating obedience to the law as the way to acceptance with God. In the first century, these people were Judaizers who stipulated that to be a Christian, one must obey the Old Testament law. Paul rejected this view sharply in chapters 1 and 2 of the epistle to the Galatians. Given the reader's background in Judaism, the Galatians were easily swayed by the Judaizers. Paul labored in chapter 3 to explain the real purpose of the law. 
The law was not intended to be a means of salvation because the total, total depravity of mankind and because of mankind's, therefore mankind's fallen nature, man lacked the potency to meet the divine standard of perfect obedience to the law. Therefore, it was impossible for a law to be given that could provide the basis of salvation. In other words, there was nothing wrong with the law. The problem was man. Even when the Old Testament made this very clear in texts such as Habakkuk 2.4, which states, the just shall live by faith. In other words, even the Old Testament was anticipating that mankind would never be able to obey the law perfectly and therefore would need a Savior. And the only way for salvation would be through faith in that Savior. So why then the law? God explained God, Paul explained God's purpose in giving the law using the imagery from a prison and a school. The law was intended to, give, to keep us in bondage to the truth of total depravity. In other words, by, by our failures, we should continually be aware that we could never perfectly obey the law. And the law was intended, like a schoolmaster, to teach us the need for a Savior, namely Christ. In chapter 4, Paul used the imagery of a family in the workplace to explain how those who come to know Christ are adopted into the family of God. But like children, they need to be trained. To be adopted into the family of God is an expression of positional truth. The truth of justification by faith is positional truth. Then to live congruent with this position requires training. Training like the workplace. Training to be able to live congruent with that positional truth. That's called sanctification. Sanctification was the biggest and is the biggest single theme of this epistle. Paul was concerned that the Judaizers influenced his disciples away from the true gospel of the grace of Christ, and consequently his disciples were not maturing in Christ. Instead, they regressed in chapter 5, Paul referred to this regression as having fallen from grace. Now, as you read this epistle, you'll notice the past tense of salvation, that is justification, is clearly seen in very, several verses, like chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 and 21, and chapter 3, verses 8 and 11 and 24, and chapter 5, verse 4. But the overarching concern expressed by Paul was the importance of of clarity regarding the gospel of the grace of Christ, and second, clarity on the obligation of Christians to live as Christians. That is to live congruent with the gospel. Sanctification was and is the validation of the reality of being in Christ. This teaching focuses on sanctification. Paul describes sanctification as Christ being formed in them. Sanctification is the most visible marker of one who is truly in Christ. Paul knew this well and wrestled in the Spirit to facilitate the transformation of his disciples. The Galatians' inability to stand firm against the Judaizers was an indicator that they were not well grounded in Christ and therefore easily duped by the error of Paul's enemies. Paul was clear that they needed to be grounded in Christ so that the truth of being positionally in Christ could be manifested by the practical reality of Christ being formed in them. So let's look at the text now, turning to uh, verses 12 through 16. So let me just read those again. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. 
you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as, an, as Christ Jesus himself. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testified to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? In contrast to the pejorative greeting, you fools, used in chapter 3, verse 1, here in chapter 4, verse 12, Paul used a much warmer appellation, brothers. Clearly the greeting was generic, but intended to convey the presumption of a personal, equally yoked relationship with his disciples. Then Paul issued a command, which can be phrased as this, be in the continuous process of becoming like me. Paul commanded them to imitate his spiritual development. He reminded them of how he had been like them in the natural. Therefore, as he identified with them in the natural, so now he commanded them to identify with him in the spirit. Apparently, the Galatians had been swayed by attacks from Paul's enemies, the Judaizers. Perhaps his enemies tried to use Paul's physical malady against him. In the Roman worldview of the first century, if a person had a physical disorder, it was assumed that they were under divine judgment. Therefore, it was common for people with any physical issue to be shunned. But the Galatians had not shunned Paul. In verses 13 and 14 here in chapter 4, Paul commended them for how they received him on his first visit. Instead of using his physical condition as a reason to reject him, they received him as they would have received an angel from God or as they would have received Christ himself. They had not acted wickedly against him. Paul's physical issue was difficult on both Paul and the Galatians, to be sure. The details of the issue were not revealed, but verse 15 might intimate that Paul had an eye issue. As a reminder of their deep relationship, Paul expressed his belief that if possible, they would have gouged out their own eyes and given their eyes to him. That means that they would want to heal Paul if they could. That's the level of intimacy that they enjoyed. Verse 16 is a one-sentence question. Given this intimate relationship that Paul enjoyed with the Galatians, how could they have turned on him? In other words, how could they believe the false accusations of the Judaizers? This is a rhetorical question with an implied answer. And the answer is, this makes no sense. In other words, how could their attitude have changed from deep compassion to rejection? This should not have happened. This was out of order. This did not represent the Galatians that Paul knew. Paul was not their enemy, and they should have known that. Now, 17 through 21. So let me read that, and then we'll make some comments on that text. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am with, present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. In verse 17, Paul's language changed from defensive to offensive. The opening phrase could be more literally translated, they are zealous for you. 
but their will is to shut you out for no good so that you will be zealous for them. Now, he's talking about his enemies, the Judaizers here. Paul's opponents were narcissistic, self-serving, and self-glorifying manipulators. They employed a common strategy against the Galatians. They falsely flattered the Galatians, seeking to use them. These self-appointed, self-aggrandizing religious leaders wanted to be celebrated and honored. When a narcissistic leader can't gain legitimate respect, they will many times resort to false flattery as a tool to achieve their own agenda. False leaders seek to use others to serve their own purpose. True servant leaders seek to serve the purpose of God in others. Seeking celebrity status is a mark of false leaders. Jesus railed against the hypocrisy of the proud narcissistic religious leaders of his day who put their tradition ahead of scripture. They worshiped, their worship was in vain. They were blind guides who sought their own honor. They sought public greetings and special titles. Upon these, Jesus pronounced his woes. That is a denunciation. He denounced them. By contrast, he stated that a true servant is humble. The enemies of Paul and Galatians were the religious leaders like Jesus encountered. They were narcissistic, self-serving, self-aggrandizing, self-glorifying, and manipulative religious leaders. Verse 18 clarifies that notwithstanding the manipulation of the Judaizers, valuing people is important and should be done not for self-serving purposes, but for a genuine care and out of a genuine care and concern for others. A more literal translation of the verse might be as follows. But it is always good when others are zealous for you and not only when I am present with you. The selfish expression of human compassion or selfish expression of human compassion, care and concern is good. This was not the motive of the Judaizers. Rather, their motive was disingenuous and manipulative. Verse 18 sets up verse 19. And verse 19 arguably is a seminal text in this book. In contrast to the terse term, foolish Galatians, used in 3.1, Paul used now in verse 19 an affectionate patriarchal term, my little children. The use of this appellation could be a pejorative criticizing them for immaturity and being duped by the Judaizers. But more likely, it was a term of endearment expressing his compassion, care, and concern for them. Paul passionately revealed his compassion for his disciples. The warm appellation, my little children, was genuine. Paul compared his deep care for their souls using the imagery of the pain experienced by a woman in childbirth. He was deeply passionate for their well-being of his disciples. They needed to be engaged fully in the process of sanctification, not just focused on the past tense, that is the need to be, uh, <clears throat> to be regenerated and to be justified and have right standing with God. They needed to engage in sanctification, the present tense of salvation. This present tense was about learning to live in the reality of their position, learning to walk the talk. To firm Christ in a person is a process. Paul's chief purpose in writing this epistle was to facilitate this sanctification process of his disciples, no matter how hard or painful the process was for Paul. His passion for them was so deep 
that no pain would sway him from the task. Their sanctification was well worth any price that Paul had to pay. Paul understood that being a Christian was positionally being in Christ and Christ being formed progressively in the believer. The imagery of Christ being formed in a person came from the verb morpho. Morpho means to form. Given that Paul's readers were professing Christians, the word was used to speak of the progressive work of sanctification. The subjective, subjunctive mood of the verb implied risk. In other words, the word here for morpho that's translated form, or Christ being formed, is in the subjunctive mood, and subjunctive mood in the Greek language implies risk, that it may or may not happen. And of course, if it didn't happen, it may suggest that they didn't they were not in Christ in the first place. Or it could it could suggest that they're really carnal. We don't those are kinds of details we don't know the answers to. But there is risk here. Christ is formed only in those who truly know him. The evidence that Christ is being formed in a person is asymptotic growth and maturity increasingly, though never totally in this life, living in alignment with the will and ways of God. Arguably, in the recent history of Christianity, the Pauline teaching on the importance of sanctification as the validation of being in Christ is not prominent. Rather, the current focus seems to be emotionally manipulating people to make a profession of faith in Christ with a promise of eternity in heaven instead of hell. The assumption is that a profession of faith alone is a singular predicate for salvation. And the objective is numbers, that is, quantity trumps quality, which is the opposite of the Pauline priorities. Consequently, there is little stress today on the mandate to mature in Christ as a validation of the profession of faith in Christ. If Paul were alive today, undoubtedly he would be most critical of the current practice of Christianity. He was passionate to see people mature in Christ, to walk the talk, to become grounded in Christ. To Paul, living under the Lordship of Christ was the only way to live in Christ. Being in Christ must be expressed by becoming grounded in Christ. Paul passionately believed in the necessity of sanctification. It was not an optional state. It was mandatory for those who truly knew Christ. Finally, in verse 20, Paul expressed his perplexity with his disciples. How could they have abandoned the gospel of the grace of Christ and returned to legalism? He doesn't understand why they were influenced by the Judaizers. The Galatians had the singular gospel presented to them in person by Paul. How could they hear the truth of the grace of Christ and then revert to legalism as a means for acceptance with God? Paul was profoundly disturbed by their abandonment of the truth and labored fervently to turn them back to the grace of Christ. In other words, he didn't give up on them. We can't give up on people. We have to stay the course with people. He wanted them to... <clears throat> To be personally, he wanted to personally straighten them out, straighten out their thinking, but he couldn't in person, presumably because he was incarcerated in Rome. Therefore, the epistle was the best way for him to communicate his heart. Now, I want to make one theological point uh, relative to being grounded in Christ. And this is because, I guess, on some level, I see this as an enormous problem in the body of Christ today. Certainly in my own local church, I see this as a huge problem. 
by and large, most of the people there, and some of them I've known 30 years and longer, are not reflecting being grounded in Christ. So what does that mean by being grounded in Christ? Well, let me give you some thoughts. The Galatians needed to be more profoundly rooted and grounded in Christ. Metaphorically, they needed Christ formed in them so that they could have the metaphysical awareness of Christ. Accordingly, they would see reality like Christ, think like Christ, speak like Christ, and act like Christ. That's what it is to be grounded. That's what it is to have Christ formed in you. Christ being formed in a person is another term for sanctification, the present tense of salvation. Sanctification is the process of maturing in the knowledge of God. It is progressively living submitted to Jesus as Lord. Sanctification is not optional. It is the essential part of the salvation process. As such, authentic Christians are disciples of Jesus and therefore asymptotically grow in their obedience to the will and ways of Christ. Christians must be clear on the issue of obedience. Obedience does not save anyone, but it reveals whether or not a person is saved. The motive for obeying the commands of Christ should not be to attain acceptance with God, but should be gratitude for the indescribable, incredible, incomprehensible gift of eternal life. When one is regenerated by the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit, one's position in Christ is settled. One, should have, one has been justified by the grace of Christ and made a new creation in Christ. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is a statement of positional truth. Regeneration secures one's position in the family of God, but one's practices still need to be transformed. Sanctification is the process of aligning one's practices with one's position. It is one's responsibility to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ by being a servant of Christ. Now, Paul illustrates this in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1, 1 and 2, where he makes both positional and practical statements here. In other words, there are things here he says about our position and things that he says are our responsibility to secure our practice. Notice what he says, Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. If then you were raised with Christ, that's positional truth. Now he's going to talk about our commands, practical truth. Seek these things that are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, He's going to give you another practical truth here now. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. You see, being raised with Christ to, is, <clears throat> refers to one's position in Christ. We had nothing to do with that. We are sovereignly <clears throat> raised in Christ. That is the work of the Holy Spirit through regeneration to place us in the family of God, to justify us before God, to impute the righteousness of Christ to us, to see that we're now acceptable with God, that was done solely in the past tense of salvation, regeneration. The Greek ver verb here is the indicative mood, which means it's a fact. It is a fact of life because you know Christ, you are raised with Christ. If one knows Christ, one has already been raised with Christ by the unilateral sovereign work of God. Now, after stating one's position of being raised with Christ, Paul gave the two imperatives. 
Seek things above. Set your mind on things above. Imperatives are commands. That is things we are to obey. Those raised with Christ are responsible to obey the commands of Christ. Obedience is a tool that God sovereignly uses to bring alignment between one's practices and one's position. Now, notwithstanding the truth of the sovereignty of God at work in sanctification, which it clearly is, Christians are to obey the commands of Christ. Now, the role of human responsibility and divine sovereignty in the work of sanctification is somewhat mysterious. Overly stressing divine sovereignty leads to fatalism. That's what the hyper-grace movement tends to do. Overstressing human responsibility leads to legalism. That's what the Judaizers were doing. In some way, God has ordained that humans are responsible to obey in concert with the work of divine sovereignty. Paul expressed the divine mystery in the words that he gave to the Philippians. He said this in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works with you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. To work out one's salvation is a reference to sanctification. Some theologians refer to this mysterious coupling of divine sovereignty and human responsibility as the doctrine of cooperation. That's the way R.C. Sproul refers to it. Given the responsibility to obey the commands of Christ, one must guard against backsliding, that is, reverting to living as an unbeliever. The risk of reversion to living inconsistent with one's position is high. A key is to counter this risk to become, in the words of Paul, rooted and built up or grounded in Christ. Note Paul's admonition to his spiritual grandchildren in the ancient Colossae. And please note that if you look at chapter 1, you'll see that Paul is commending these professing Christians for their love, for how they are walking in love. They're doing a lot of things that look Christian. Nevertheless, he will say to this them in chapter 2 these words, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So you see, he's talking to people he believes he's seen marks of Christ in them and them being in Christ. Nevertheless, they're not grounded. He's commanding them. He actually issues a command here. This is an imperative. Walk in him. Now, the word for, for, for walk in the Greek language is a word that refers to, uh, it's a metaphorical word for lifestyle. Your lifestyle should reflect Christ. Paul assumed that his readers had received the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Now they were commanded to so walk by faith. You receive him by faith, you walk by faith. But you have a responsibility now. Receiving Christ, you had nothing to do with it. It was given to you, totally by grace. But now, walking it out, you have responsibility. The mandate was to embrace a lifestyle congruent with Christ. The manifestation as they walked in him was that Christ was asymptotically being transformed and formed in them. Increasingly, they lived based on a Christian worldview as they were taught. Being regenerated 
establishes our identity in Christ, but it, <clears throat> it, but it does not ground our practices in Christ. This requires sanctification, which is our responsibility. It requires commitment to study and learn the Word of God. It requires prayer and fellowship with healthy followers of Christ. It requires discipleship, including submission to authority and accountability. This is the way forward to become grounded in Christ, to grow into a stable lifestyle of asymptotically aligning with the will and ways of God. An illustration of the blessings of being grounded in Christ was given by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he said this, Matthew 7, verses 24 and 25. Therefore, whoever hears these words of mine and does them, I will liken that man to a man who built his house on the rock, and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. And in the next two verses, he illustrates the opposite, what it looks like if you're not grounded in Christ, the risk that you have. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. I wonder if that may be happening today in some of our Christian communities in the world today. Now, a word of application. In the Old Testament, Saul was the first king of Israel. King Saul was a striking man, tall and handsome. He looked, he looked the part of a king, but he was rebellious. He enjoyed much success for a season, but his sin found him out. His seminal act of rebellion was his failure to obey God's command to totally destroy the Amalekites. Instead, he decided to keep the best for himself. Then when confronted about his rebellion, he denied it. And his denial proved false. He then rationalized it. Saul's disobedience to God was tantamount to rejection of God. God reciprocated by rejecting Saul. Though he was God's chosen instrument, the chosen vessel, the anointed one, and commissioned to be king, Paul, Saul sinned by not obeying God. He sought to do his will, and when discovered, he sought to cover up his sin. Now, like Saul, in the Old Testament, we have Saul in the New Testament, also known as Paul, who was a leader who enjoyed great authority. He said of himself, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people, so extremely zealous as I, was I for the traditions of my father. That's Galatians 1.14. Like King Saul, his rebellion against God succeeded for a season. Regrettably, Saul of Tarsus deserved the same end as King Saul in the Old Testament because both rejected God. But instead, the Saul of Tarsus was given mercy and grace. Why was King Saul rejected and Saul of Tarsus given grace? Perhaps the reason had to do with calling. From his mother's womb, Saul of Tarsus was prepared for the work of presenting the singular gospel of the grace of Christ. You see this in Galatians 1.15. At a time when the ubiquitous view of attaining right standing with God was based on obedience to the Mosaic law, the singular gospel of the grace of Christ was an extreme view. Therefore, to articulate this gospel would require someone with a unique background. Someone who radically experienced the superior reality of grace over human works. What better person than Saul of Tarsus? 
one of the most zealous legalists of his day, one of the most successful legalists of his day, one of the most revered legalists of his day. Saul was given much so that he could, in turn, give much. His profound transforming encounter with Christ was not based on anything he did. In fact, he deserved the same fate as King Saul. But instead, he was given much grace. He experienced this profound revelation of the grace of Christ so that he could become the profound leading emissary of this grace. The Apostle Paul experience illustrates not only the incredible gift of the grace of God, but also illustrates how lives are used of God to prepare us for our destinies. That is our history, our lives. Paul was prepared from the womb, his mother's womb, to live out his calling, his destiny. God is indeed sovereignly at work in the lives, both our lives, both before we know Christ and afterwards, all for his purpose. And God sovereignly works even in the lives of those who never knew Christ, such as Pharaoh. This illustrates that the truth of the sovereignty, sovereign, intentional, strategic nature of God applies to everyone in every sphere of life. For example, consider building organizations. Wise leaders seek to build with people in whom Christ has been formed. Such people enjoy the favor of God in fulfilling their destinies. For people in whom Christ is not evident, leaders should seek to disciple them into maturity in Christ. The predicate for discipleship is humility, submission, and teachability in the person. The riskiest workers are those who, like King Saul, appear to be God's anointed, but have a heart of rebellion against God. These people will act on their rebellion and reject God at some point, and God will respond by rejecting them. Consequently, they will have no divine favor to perform their work assignment. Given the principle that spiritual reality drives physical reality, a person whose heart rejects God will not be able to consistently work with excellence. One of the key principles for building organizations well is facilitating the formation of Christ in people. That is discipleship, helping people mature so they can realize their potential through their callings. Therefore, wise organizational leaders will seek to discern both the level of maturity and the call of God on people. Such people will seek to develop, you know, such leaders will seek to develop people by facilitating the formation of Christ in them, understanding that maturity in Christ is a key to releasing their calling. Leaders must avoid the temptation to use people for their own agenda. This is abuse. Leaders must learn to disciple people in maturity in Christ as a predicate for for more completely seeing the call of God on their lives. And when leaders begin to see the call of God on people, they must support them in fulfilling that call. This is biblical leadership. In other words, discipleship is the predicate for fulfilling destiny, and fulfilling destiny is the predicate for excellence. Ultimately, organizational success can be synthesized as the right people serving the right customers or clients by doing the right things the right way, in the right place, at the right time, for the right reason. And when God alone is the definer of right, then the organization will be an immense success. May God grant us the grace to build according to his definition of right. In Jesus' name.